Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wordson, titles today's study, The Butler, the Baker, and the Destiny Maker. He begins with a personal time with some children, getting them to share about their Christmas wish list. Listen to their enthusiasm and try to figure out why you aren't quite as excited about holidays as they are. When they hear that announcement, there are 35 shopping days or whatever it is until Christmas. The kids are excited about that. Most of the adults have started going, oh, man, another holiday season and all the work I have to do and all the hassle with shopping. You see, when you're just a little kid, just getting a plastic toy at Christmas is a sufficient dream, right? In high school, you start having other dreams. You dream of, you know, maybe... You know, the car you're going to get, you dream about what school you're going to go to, and you start dreaming about some of the success that you might have. You move into college and you start dreaming about the profession you might go in. You, you start dreaming about the house you might be able to buy, and the dreams continue. You really think about how fulfilling it will be in a career. As you move into midlife, one of the things that's been talked about a great deal is midlife crisis. Now, there's a lot of chemical things that are going on, but one of the essential things personally that happens in a midlife crisis is that by the time you get into your late 30s and your early 40s, you have friends that start dying, and you've seen that their dreams have been unfulfilled. One of the hardest things is that you have elderly parents, you see, when you reach that age, and you start to see that some of them lived lives that were empty. You see, all these things that they ran after, you were raised and your dad went to work every day. A lot of, in a lot of times, even the mom was working every day. And you saw them just pour this gift called life into a farm or into LTV or into general dynamics or whatever it might be. You see them pour their life into school teaching. And when they get up into those elderly years, their life is empty. And you see that sometimes they become very negative, they become very cynical, and it's like their dreams have just crashed. So in your 40s, you start to say, well, why should I wait until I'm 70 before I just give up on this thing called life? You see, one of the realities is of human life is that the preacher says it's all emptiness. It's all emptiness. Vanity of vanities, emptiness, meaninglessness of meaninglessness. It's all meaningless. Now, when you're little, you think toys are a sufficient dream. In high school, you might think that a car will make you happy, but by the time you get to be in your 40s, you start to say, it doesn't add up to anything. It's all emptiness. Now, that's tragic. Really, really tragic. In fact, what a lot of people do then is they try to find their dream and drink. A lot more people than we would ever think. You see, one of the major motivations for drinking is that it takes away that hollowness for a brief period of time. It makes you really feel alive. Now, as a pastor teacher, one of my greatest burdens for everyone, from the youngest child to the oldest adults, I don't want you to waste this precious thing called life. And I want everyone to be able to get up in the morning and have a dream. Now, the man that we've been studying about, Joseph in the Old Testament, was a young man that when we picked up his life at 17, when we looked at Joseph at 17, he was a young man with a dream. He was a young man so excited about his dream that he shared it with his brothers. And what was his dream? 
In the first dream, he dreamed that they were out in a field and they were, they were harvesting the grain, probably barley, and they were putting it up in sheaves. They had gathered together these piles and all the piles bowed down to a central sheath. And that was the sheath of Joseph. And Joseph was the leader. He was the one that was going to rule over people. And deep in all of our hearts, we're hungry for power. You see, it's built into us. We want to have influence. That's why I wanted to play quarterback when I played football, because when I walked into the huddle, I had influence. I had power. That's something that we want to have. Kim Lewis tells me one of the reasons he likes working in finance is even though he might not be the superintendent of schools in Cedar Hill, and he could be, he tells me the reason I don't want that is because in every meeting, in every single meeting we have, somewhere along the meeting, somebody turns to Kim and says, well, Kim, can we do it? The power of finances. The power of finances. You see, we're all hungry for that. The Lord built us for that. He built man in Genesis 1. Let man rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over all of God's creation. You were born to rule. And that's what the Lord was telling Joseph. Joseph, you have a dream. And the dream is you're going to rule. You're going to have influence over people. You're going to be someone that people look to for guidance and direction and protection. The other dream was about the sun, moon, and stars, and they bowed down before Joseph as well. And even his dad got uptight about that, remember? So you remember Joseph's dream. He was a young man with a dream. Now what happened in Joseph's life? Well, right off the bat in the next chapter, right after he told his brother that dream, he was thrown in a pit and he ended up in Egypt. We saw Joseph rise to ascendancy even though he was a slave the dream began to come true. The dream began to happen. In other words, Potiphar realized God is with this man. God is upon his life. And everything he touches turns to gold. He's a successful man because the power of some God is with him. Even the Egyptian Potiphar realized that. And so he made him the ruler over all of his household. And though he was a slave, Joseph was beginning to see the fulfillment of his dream. And then an immoral, strange woman, right out of the book of Proverbs, chapter 7, tried to seduce this young, handsome, marvelously gifted young man, and then she lies about him. He is moral. He is pure. And she lies, and everybody in Egypt that hears about this case thinks that Joseph is an immoral, very evil, seductive kind of a man. And he ends up down this prison. Now, what would happen to your dream if you were Joseph at that point? Exactly what's happened to some of your dreams. If you analyze, a lot of you have let go of a dream because the circumstances didn't work out. You see, some of you can look back over your childhood and you remember like Joseph, you remember a real, meaningful moving of the Spirit when you were a little kid or maybe a young man or woman. And it moved you very powerfully that the Holy Spirit had come into your life when you believed that Christ died for you, when you believed that Christ rose again, and you felt that special warmth, that special touch of God in your life. It's very important for us to make the connection that not only Joseph had a dream, but we have a dream as well. And Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, talks about the New Testament dream that Jesus Christ has for every single person. Ephesians chapter 1, begin reading at verse 18. 
I pray also, this is the Apostle Paul praying for believers like yourself, and he prayed for them like this. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And that would be my prayer this morning, that every single one of you would have eyes, spiritual eyes, that would have the lights turned on. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to see when there isn't enough light? You know, sometimes in our kitchen area, it's kind of dim. There's no windows nearby there. And sometimes when I get up early in the morning, I try to read this book. Remember one morning I was trying to do that, and I said, man, maybe I am getting old. I can't even read it. And I realized, man, there isn't any lights on in here. You can't read when it's dark. So you need to flip on the light, and then suddenly when there's enough light, you can see. Well, the Holy Spirit in this passage is like that light that you flip on. And he's the one that when we open ourselves up to his presence in our life, he enlightens our eyes. And that's what Paul is praying for. The Holy Spirit in every single one of our lives is the only one that can make this dream come alive. You might be sitting there and I talk to you about an unbelievable dream that God has for you. I talk to you about this incredible life-transforming meaning, but your mind can be a million miles away because you have another dream. You're into another meaning of life. And so you won't even hear the dream that God has for you. And Paul realized that, and that's why he said, I am praying for every believer that your eyes will have enough light from the Holy Spirit and that you'll respond to that light so that God's dream won't be dim for you, that it won't just fade away, and that you won't be focused clearly on something else. That's what he's praying. I pray that the eyes of your heart deep inside your personalities, that the lights might be turned on. Why? That you might know the hope to which he's called you. And that's what I'm talking about this morning. A hope, a confidence that doesn't die. It says the hope that you've been called to, and this hope is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head, the supreme ruler, over everything. And God has done that incredibly for the church, which is you. And that church is the Lord Jesus' body, the fullness of him who fills everything. Incredibly, the Lord Jesus in Ephesians chapter 1 is telling us that we are the Lord's dream. You sitting out there are the dream of Jesus Christ. He is in love with every single one of us. And he has been appointed to be the supreme ruler. This is just, it's so incredible, it's almost impossible to get the dream across. It's almost impossible for us to communicate to a group of believers that you're not insignificant, you're not just little weasels that are going out there, kind of second-rate citizens in the world. You are the specially loved children of God. Unbelievers should want to come into the gospel of Jesus Christ. They should want to identify with Christ because believers have found such an incredible dream. You see, what the scriptures tell us in this passage is, is that Jesus Christ has been installed already. 
He is already at the position of supreme authority. He is sitting at the right hand of God. That's a perspective of Ephesians, which means that there's no one higher. There's no other court of appeal. There's no other ruler. There's no one that can supersede him. And what he goes on to tell us in Ephesians 1, as I just read it to you, is that you, you are the reason that he gave his life, that he rose again, that he ascended to heaven. Incredibly, his love just flows out of himself, and he wants to bring every single one of us into that intimate, close love relationship with him, and we're going to be ruling and reigning with him. Now, that's a dream. That is a dream. Somewhere out there, Remember in Fightful when he was all alone? Maybe there's someone somewhere out there who's saying a prayer for me. And I couldn't help but I listened to the words of that song again yesterday. Is how do you know someone that's out there? How do you know where they are? How do you know whether there's anything out there? You see, it stirs something really deep inside when we talk about, man, there's something out there. There's something bigger than just this physical life. There's something bigger than this life that can end so quickly, either with cancer or an accident or something like that. But how do you know that somebody is saying a prayer for us? How do you know that someone is out there somewhere? Ephesians 1 says, you know, because Jesus has been already installed in the position of authority and influence and rulership. And incredibly, he loves every single one of you. You want a dream? You want a dream? That's the dream. And the way you fulfill that dream in the here and now is you start to invest your life in it. You see, every day you get up in the morning or sometime during the day, you carve out some time where you can check in with your dream. You carve out some time where you can listen to your lover in heaven express his love to you. And I cringe because some of you have had this tremendous love relationship so brutalized because you were raised in a situation where you weren't told you were the objects of God's love. You were continually whipped and your backs are bleeding spiritually, some of you. It's so hard to get across to you. This thing is about a celebration. Tony Campalo's books talks about it's a party. I read to you when we talked about praise, singing with cymbals and tambourines and trumpets blaring. Why? Because Jesus is in love with you. He loves you. Spirituality is about this tremendous lover of our soul. And so every day you find some time when you can check out the dream. Because if you don't listen to the dream, it gets lost. You forget it. So quickly you forget it. And you start to live for other dreams which don't come true. And your life becomes empty. And then maybe you drink. And I'm working with high school kids that are already filling their lives with a false dream. Already, they're living just for Friday night. And they even wait till Friday night. Wednesday night, they can be plastered. Why? Because the dream's flowing away. And man, you just drink six of them down, and you start to feel the dream again. You don't feel anything. That's why, probably. But at least something's happening in your life. You go to a lot of our, some of our kids are back from college. College kids, they begin to realize, hey, this doesn't add up. All this studying, all this work. Man, life, it's not adding up. It's not meeting the needs of my life. Man, life, I could get all the way through all these four years, study my head off, almost ruin my body, have mono about six times. I walk out and I can't get a job. What's the use? 
The dreams come crashing down. I work with a little kid in middle school. You make a transition from grammar school to middle school. The precious little kid has decided, might as well end it. I can't make the transition in the middle school. It's too hard. I don't think I'm going to make the grade. Somebody criticized me, and, and there were red marks all over my paper, and the little girl decides life is meaningless. That's sad, brothers and sisters, really, really sad. And I want church to become a place of dreams, the dream, where every precious little kid can realize in athletics, Maybe you don't get to play, or maybe you don't make the team. You can be rejected in a lot of areas, but your dream hasn't crashed down. Man, what really holds your life together, and your fact that you're loved, the fact that you're important, the fact that you're really somebody, it hasn't been, been hurt. That's what I covet for every one of you, because that's what helps us to stay alive inside. Now, Joseph had a dream like that, but we find him in prison. So let's pick up his story in prison. We've got our dream, which is this relationship with Christ, not ruling over Egypt like Joseph's going to end up doing, but we're going to rule over all of eternity. But look what happens to the dream, Genesis chapter 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker, we're going to call this message the butler, the baker, and the destiny maker. The butler, the maker, the destiny maker. Whenever you think of Genesis 40, the butler, the baker, the destiny maker. Sometime later, this is after, so it sets the scene, Joseph, down in prison. The cupbearer, the butler, the cupbearer, and the baker of the king of Egypt. These were two important officials, very close to the king. You might not think of a baker being very important, but if you slip a little cyanide in the baked bread in the morning for your king, he conks over, so you want to have a good buddy as the baker. That's the idea here. They offended their master. It doesn't tell us what they did, but evidently the baker did something really bad because he gets punished for it pretty severely. Maybe there was a conspiracy. We'll have to ask Joseph when we get to heaven. They offended somehow the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious, and with his two officials and the chief cupbearer and the chief baker were put in the clink. They were put in the custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned Joseph to them, and he attended to them. And they had been in his custody for some time. And what's going on here is that these two chief officials were putting a, put in a temporary holding tank for, for non-sentenced criminal. It's kind of a little bit better than a county jail before you go down to Huntsville would be kind of the idea. And it's in the temporary period. We're not, we're not going to have a jury trial here. Pharaoh just decides what he's going to do. But evidently, even under that kind of monarchical rule, he does have to gather some information. So that's what's going on. You've got two officials that are put in a temporary holding tank, probably a little bit nicer than when Joseph was staying, was staying, but Joseph was put in charge of taking care of these men. Now remember, he's over all the rest of the prison. He's like the, the chief uh, attendant. When we go into the prison with the Bill Glass Crusades, they have these special, what do they call them? Trustees, that's it, somebody else has. And, and who's been in prison over here? Okay, the trustees, kind of, they're over the other prisoners. They usually wear a little bit different. They use a little, little wider dress, and they, uh, they're special guys. Not, sometimes they're not loved too much, but they're over the other prisoners. That's what Joseph is kind of doing. And now we have a special assignment. It's kind of like the trustees that are serving in the dining hall. A special job in prison is to get to serve the rest of the officers and those that are the guards in the special mess hall where they eat. Joseph has a position like that. He's a special trustee. 
It says, one day after he had them in custody, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night. And each dream had a meaning of its own. The significant thing is that they both had a dream. It was on the same night. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he said nothing to them. He ignored them. You know, you guys have your lumps. I have my lumps. Is that what it says? No. I want you to notice something. It's really important. Look what Joseph says to them. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? And then they explained. We both had dreams and they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. I want you to notice something, brothers and sisters. This is really important. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us that we need to comfort the faint-hearted. It says we need to encourage one another. And I want all of us to think this morning, do you look at people's faces and at their eyes? Because Joseph's a man who, though he was in prison, looked at people's faces, and he noticed they were discouraged. It all began. And that's the kind of a man that God's looking for to have influence in his kingdom. You see, God doesn't look for PhDs, and he doesn't look for speaking ability, and he doesn't look for all kinds of tremendous economic skills. What he looks for is heart. 1 Corinthians 13 says that if we don't have love, we can speak, we can give, we can do everything else, but it won't add up to anything. I want to ask you a question. Are you an outward-directed person who notices people you're working with, people that you're in school with, people that you're rubbing shoulders with, you look at their faces and you notice when they're downcast? Now, I want you to notice something. Joseph is in prison. I want to tell you something about prison. In prison, you don't notice if people are downcast. In prison, you exist. In prison, you keep to yourself. In prison, you don't get eye contact. In prison, you get in your little group and you survive. Life in prison is about survival. And it is very much inner-directed. You put a shell around the outside and you don't notice what's going on in other people's lives. But the man of God in prison noticed that there were two guys that were discouraged. And his simple words, guys, it's kind of, to put it in modern parlance, he says, guys, man, what's wrong? You guys look like death warmed over this morning. What's wrong? What's troubling you guys? You know, your life will be transformed if this week you and I start looking at each other's faces. And especially getting eye contact and telling somebody, hey, I care. You see, God's family needs to be a place where it's not just the, hi, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Everything is great. It's so good to be here this morning. Everything's fine. Then you walk out there, oh, man, my life is caving in. I just went bankrupt. See, those are the games people play. You see, we're not here to play. We're here to notice one another's faces. And we need to be a group that puts its arm around the downcast because that's the kind of rulers the Lord is looking for. The people in God's kingdom that deserve to have influence are the people that receive God's grace and they open their heart to that grace. And it all began with a simple, you guys are discouraged today. What's wrong? So they tell them. They say, well, we both had a dream and there's nobody here to interpret. So Joseph says to them in verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. 
Tell me your dreams. Now that statement is loaded. Do not interpretations of dreams belong to God. Tell me your dream. I want to tell you something about Egypt. Egypt had the Harvard and the Yale and the Princeton of dream interpretations. You see, dream interpretations was a special art in the kingdom of Egypt. They had hundreds of professionals, probably thousands of professionals. If these guys were on the outside world, they could go and pay big bucks to have an interpreter of dreams tell them what their dream was all about. But they're in prison. And no matter how much bucks they have, they don't have access to that institution of interpreting dreams. They don't have access to the professionals. What are they going to do? That's why they're discouraged. Because you see, back in those days, before this revelation was completed, God did speak to people in dreams. Not often, but very specially. We've learned that with Abraham. Abraham had a vision. He even had a vision of the 400 years of captivity in Egypt. Jacob, remember at Bethel, he had a vision. In the dreams at night, he saw heaven open and he saw the throne of God. In the book of Genesis, dreams is one of the primary vehicles that God uses to talk to his people. Now we have a completed revelation. It's much easier, much quicker, and it's much more accessible because we don't have to wait till we have a dream. We can read about the dream anytime we want to. It's not the usual way today. Not that God couldn't do it. We don't want to ever lock God in a box and say God can't do something. But it's not God's usual way to talk to us in a dream. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, before Moses, Moses hasn't come for many more years, about a thousand years after this was written, this story. So in those days, in the time of Joseph, God wrote to people in dreams. Not a thousand years, it really comes out about 600 years or so, Okay. So I want you to understand that. These dreams are not like, you know, one of you sharing a dream. This is a special revelation from God, only who's going to tell us what the dream means? And these guys are discouraged. I don't know. No one can do it. And Joseph tells them something very important. And this is God's message to every one of us. You can go into all the institutions. You can read all the books that you want to read. You can read everything you want to read. And there's no man on planet Earth that can interpret the dream. There's no man on planet Earth that can tell you the most important answer and give you the most important interpretation that you desperately need. And that is, what is going to be your destiny? What's going to happen to you tomorrow? You see, I don't care how brilliant someone is. I don't care how much mystical power they have. And if you think what I'm talking about isn't important, listen, I want to tell you something. Rock groups go out and travel up and down this country. The Beatles traveled all over the world. Where did they end up? They ended up in India. Why? They made big bucks. Man, they had all the girls they could want. They had all the acclaim they could want. Why did they end up in India? Because when you get through with all the malarkey, our human life comes down to what's the dream about? What's going to happen with my destiny? What's going to happen if I die? And then you start looking. It's incredible. You begin studying psychology, and I'll start reading about the dynamics of the human mind and start reading about some of the new biochemistry that's being done and about how chemicals influence the mind, and you go through a whole section, very scientific, very objective. You get to the last chapter on trans psychology and mystical psychology, and you take a guy like Young, a great psychologist, and the guy ends up in religion. Why? Because that's where the hunger of our heart is. 
As you grow older, you begin to wake up and realize, man, i got to get some answers. And what Joseph says is, man, doesn't God, doesn't the God who's really there, doesn't the infinite creator of the universe, doesn't he interpret the dream? And I would come to every one of you and say, God, the Father in heaven, through his Son, interprets your destiny. He gives you the answer. He's the destiny maker. And he's the only one that can do that. He really is. You can search hither and yon. You can take so many journeys in life. But unless it comes back to the person of Jesus who interprets the dream, your life will be futile. It will turn out empty. It's a heavy statement. But Joseph says, doesn't God, and Joseph means the God of Israel, who was the father of Jesus Christ, who gave us the Messiah, he's saying that's the God that interprets the dream. Well, evidently the guys had confidence in him. Evidently, you know, someone that cared about him, someone that was still happy in prison. Maybe he was singing, heaven came down and glory filled my soul, I don't know. But somehow they said, well, we'll listen to this guy. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream, and he said this to him. In my dream, this is verse 9, in my dream I saw a vine in front of me. And on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. And notice everything happens quickly. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup into his hand. And this is a lot like Egyptian art. Egyptian art will take a highly stylized, they'll take an everyday event and highly stylize it into kind of a, a quick snapshot. Remember, if you've ever looked at Egyptian art, it's kind of flat, non-dimensional, but it's like just a, a shot of reality. And that's what's happening in this dream. It's very interesting. It's very Egyptian. And what he sees is this vine. And now that we already know the interpretation of the dream, it's easy to figure it out. Obviously, it's a happy dream. It comes out good because he ends up squeezing the grapes and giving it back to Pharaoh. And so there's kind of a happy ending. The difficulty is, is the connection what about these three branches? What do the three branches mean? And that's where Joseph has the inspiration of God, because that could mean anything. It could mean 3,000 years. It could mean three hours. It could mean anything. So notice what Joseph begins this. This is what the dream means. The three branches are three days. Now, that was the insight that was the key to the dream. It's kind of like a math problem. It's easy to read this text, and you, know, you already know the answer because you learned it in Sunday school. You say, big deal, you know, I could interpret that dream. But when you don't have the answer, when you're sitting in a prison cell with some guys and they tell you this story, how do you know you should make the connection three branches equals three days? That was the revelation of God. That was the gift of grace. And God told Joseph, three branches equals three days. Then the rest of the story just flows from that. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, and a king would do that. You would come before the king, bow down flat on your stomach before him, put your head down, and he would tell you to lift up your head. And then he would tell you what he was going to do with you. So Pharaoh would tell him to lift up his head, and I'll restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. Now get this. When all goes well with you, notice Joseph's confidence in his dream interpretation. When all goes well with you, remember me. Remember me. Have you ever asked a friend to remember you. When all goes well with you, remember me and show me loyal love, kindness. Remember loyal love. Remember your old friend. 
don't forget. Remember me and mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this pit. For I was forcibly carried away. Now Joseph goes back over all the bad events of his life. Verse 10, verse 15. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I have done nothing to deserve being put into the dungeon. Now I want you to notice something. This is marvelous storytelling. In fact, it would be much better just to tell you this story, but I can't. i got to kind of interpret it for you. But I want you to feel this. There's a tremendous lift in this story. You've got to feel with Joseph. You've been in prison. Just imagine your life. Can you imagine recounting a life? Can you imagine what Joseph's lifeline was about? You know, you come along 17 years old, boom, a big drop. And somebody at the table says, what happened there, Joseph? Well, my brother sold me into slavery. Great, great stuff. So then you say, well, things started really going well in Egypt. So the line starts going, things really start. I mean, I came head over Pharaoh's household. Things were going really great. And then the line dropped even lower than it went before. You say, well, Joseph, what happened there? I said, well, man, the, the boss's wife lied about me. Said I was an immoral, you know, you know what? And I got thrown in jail. And I've been in jail ever since. Now, what would you, sitting around a table, tell a guy like that? You see, one of the things I want to get across to you, I believe that there's some of you here that are really hurt in your life. A lot of the people that need to hear what I'm talking about aren't here today. And the reason they're not here today is because they're in the pits. And I want to share something with you about human life. Human life often follows the course of life that Joseph was on. And very few people really tell us that. You see, very seldom do we tell people, you know, your brothers are going to let you down. People that you grew up with, you're going to find out they really didn't love you so much. In fact, they might have hated your guts. They might have been incredibly jealous of you. And they might hurt you really badly. You see, we don't talk about the right down into the pits. You see, all of us have the idea, you know, I, I, I get a dream, I'm going to rule and reign with Christ, so that means I go out and I have beautiful homes and have a nice family, we live happily ever after, and everybody, everything's fine, we all get along, there's no misunderstandings, everything is great, and then we go home and we sing, glory to God forever and ever and ever. But life doesn't work out with that. You get involved in a church like ours. And you start really pouring your life into it. Man, the Holy Spirit's really warm in your heart. And then you make a business deal with one of our major leaders. I'm just making all this up, so please don't make any connections, okay? Man, the guy's got just a special deal for you, man. You're going to make thousands. You invest all your life savings because this is a great spiritual leader. And it turns out the guy lied to you. And you lose everything. You lose $50,000. So what do you do? I'll never go back to that church again. Forget this Jesus, you know what. There's a lot of people out there like that. All over this area, the more I talk with people that are not into Jesus anymore, when I get them to open up to me and we get by all the preacher crud and we start to say, hey, I'm Dave, you're so-and-so, tell me what's going on in your life. Time and time again, some of the most hard-boiled guys will look and say, Dave, there was a time when I was close. But then life happened, and I was hurt. Now, I want you to hear the Joseph story, because Joseph was hurt probably worse than any man that I could ever tell you about. And here his hopes begin to soar, because he just interpreted a dream. Man, this, God, this has got to be of God. 
I mean, this butler is right next to the Pharaoh, and in three days, he's going to be before the supreme court of the land would be what it was like, and he could get his case reassigned. If you've ever visited in prison, every prisoner you're with is telling you, man, I'm in here unjustly. You need to bring me before the governor. I need to be pardoned. And Joseph is saying, man, you need to do that for me. Only this time, the prisoner's story is true. He really shouldn't be there. And his hopes begin to rise. In fact, man, the, the situation's so positive that the baker gets so excited, and the baker says, well, I'm going to tell you my dream. Man, I'm going to get in on a good thing. This guy is really on the level. So the chief, baker, the chief baker in verse 16 tells Joseph his dream. He saw that it was a favorable interpretation to the butler. So he said, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. I don't know how he carried Three baskets of bread in his head, you'll have to ask. I don't know. He might not have been a believer. So maybe you can ask. I don't know. Maybe Joseph knows. There are pictures of Egyptian bakers carrying a lot of stuff on their head, just like this. Now, in the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. You know, we've got some pictures where they had 32 different kinds of bakery items in Egypt. There's some uh, papyrus scrolls you can read that gives you how to bake all this stuff and all the... Just all the different kinds of things they did. It's really interesting, the Hebrews, when they thought about Egypt, they thought about all this bakery stuff. Evidently, the, the chief bakers and everything were in, the, in the ancient world were down in Egypt. So this guy was a preeminent guy. It says, in the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the baskets on my head. Now, in the Bible, birds usually, especially if they're eating something, are symbols of bad news. For example, in the story of Abraham, when he had the vision, the vultures came and they ate the carcasses, and it was a picture of gloom. In the book of Revelation, you have vultures that, that fly over, and it's symbols of carrion and death. And so we, I want you to see how you want to be alert for those symbols in the Bible. This is one that's introduced very early. In this dream, the birds are a foreboding symbol of death and gloom. So in the Bible, when you're reading and you read about birds that come and eat things or that are hovering over something like that, many times it's a symbol of death. It says, Joseph gives the interpretation of it, it says this is what it means, verse 18. The three baskets are three days. With three, within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head, not up your head, but off your head, and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now that's a rough story. That was a bad interpretation. His dream of destiny turned out poorly. Now, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and they sang happy birthday to him, and he gave a great feast for all of his officials, and he lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer. In other words, he heard their case, and the chief baker in the presence of his officials, and he restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Now that's a bad news ending. A guy's hung. The birds come and eat his flesh. The butler gets right up to the court of Pharaoh. And what should happen in this story? The butler should say, hey, Pharaoh, you know how I found out? You know, I knew exactly what was going to happen. You see, three days ago, I was in jail. There's a young Hebrew guy down there. He's a really sharp-looking guy. It's obvious he doesn't belong in prison. He told me he was illegitimately sold into slavery. He was lied about, and he's ended up in prison. And he is really a man of God. He has great insight into God. You need to, you need to look into his case, just like you looked into mine. 
That's what Joseph was sitting in prison on the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, the seventh day, a year, more than a year. I want to ask you a question. Has a believer ever let you down? Has a friend ever let you down? And what have you decided about it? You see, there's a whole lot of people that say, well, I believe in the dream. I'll say, what do you believe? I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe with all my heart. I believe in the dream. Do you believe he rose again the third day? Yes, I believe with all my heart that he rose again the third day. I'll say, do you fellowship regularly with believers? No. Why not? Because I've been hurt. They let me down. They didn't help me when I really needed help. They said they'd remember me and they forgot all about me. And so I'm really hurting. In fact, I'm really angry. In fact, to be honest with you, I'm just plain old depressed. And what I do is I sit in my house at night alone. And I'm just eking out human existence. You know, Joseph could have done that. And you know what you're thinking? I say, well, what do you think about God? You say, well, you know, I think all this stuff, I think, I think God really is loving, but I don't think he loves me. I say, why don't you think he loves me? Because if he loves me, he wouldn't let people deceive me. He wouldn't let people let me down. He wouldn't let me get thrown in prison. He wouldn't let people forget about me. He wouldn't let all this cruddy stuff happen to me. And so I sure I know theoretically he, he's a loving God, but I don't, I don't think he loves me. In fact, to be honest with you, deep inside my personality, I think God's really a bum. Because he's really let me down. In fact, I'm really angry with him. He really hasn't come through for me. And if you think I'm just talking about something that's not very prevalent, it is incredibly prevalent. It's one of the big temptations of life to say bad circumstances mean God isn't good. God doesn't love me. And what I want you to see from Genesis chapter 40, if ever there was a man, if ever there was a man that could have thrown up his hands and say, I'm not going to worship Yahweh again. I'm not going to listen to his dreams. I'm not going to pay attention to him. I'm just going to worship the gods of Egypt. I'm just going to do whatever I can in this prison to just make life bearable. Forget all that Israel, Genesis, all this Bible stuff. Forget it. Man, it doesn't work out for me. All I get done is my brothers sell me into slavery. I end up in Egypt. I think things are going good. Man, I end up lied about and now I'm in prison again. And then my hopes get up. Man, I was sure it was going to come through. The butler could go right to Pharaoh and he forgets all about it. And so I interviewed Joseph in prison. I say, Joseph, how it's doing? And he says, man, I'm angry. You know, and the incredible thing, you never read that about Joseph. You know why? Because incredibly... The key to Joseph's life is not ruling over Egypt. You see, the key to our life can't be even ruling over the universe. If it is, then we've got the wrong focus. You know what the key to Joseph's life was? God is with me. You see, all the way through the Joseph story, the lead phrase of the author is, God is with me. God is with me. In prison, God was with him. And Joseph realized if he was with God because God was good, that even when you have jealous brothers and lying bosses' wives and forgetful butlers, if God is with us, 
eventually there's going to be a throne. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something about God's throne. God trains his special leaders in the pits, in the prisons, in the slavery of this world. That's really what the Bible's telling us. And a lot of people don't tell you that. You see, God has so ordained things that he carves at our life and he develops character and he develops commitment and endurance. He develops the stuff that makes character. It's the stuff that makes people able to rule wisely and to guide people wisely and not to be overcome by pride. You see, God teaches his children by the failures. And that's what the Joseph story is telling us. You see, if you're a friend, maybe you're sitting there and you say, man, my best friend forgot me. You can respond to it and say, God doesn't care. Or you can say, God has something for me to learn. And my forgetful friend can't block what God wants to do in life. You know, I've seen that time and time again in my life. Time and time again. You know, like... I was writing that stuff on Proverbs. I had much of a manuscript done on Proverbs. Sent it out to several publishers, and every one of them turned it down. One of those publishers wrote back and said, three out of four of the editors said, let's go with it. But the swing vote said no, so we're not going to do it right now. And you feel like saying, man, God, you gave me these ideas. I think, I think you could really use it. Man, why is it I can't? I mean, I have my doctorate degree from Dallas Seminary. My dad's a famous evangelist. Man, it's crazy these guys won't publish it. And the Lord says, it's my dream. You've got a lot to learn. You need to really be humbled. I don't care less about your degree from Dallas. I don't care less the fact that you think you have some special insight into my word. This is my thing, David. That's what God is saying to you. This is my thing, God says. This is what I want to do. And you learn that it's God's thing in the pits. You learn in the failures. You learn when you're rejected. You learn when things aren't going well, that it's God's thing. And next week you need to come back. Because after two years, at the perfect time, God's going to say, Joseph, the butler might have forgot, but I didn't. And I was writing a story that at just the perfect time, at just the perfect moment, when all the stage was set, the dream that I gave you would become reality. That's God's dream for every one of you. As you go through the pits, you go through the discouragement, there's going to come the moment for every one of you when the dream becomes true. I hope you have that dream. Every one of us can have it by believing in Christ by believing that he died for us, by believing that he rose again, we become his children by a faith in that. And then he gives us a dream which will last forever.